Hello and welcome to Through the Lens of Recovery, the podcast that digs into the issues, stories and triumphs that surround addiction. I'm Annie Murray, founder of Horizon, a not-for-profit filmmaking program that teaches those in recovery from addiction how to create compelling stories through the medium of film. And I'm Sophie Turton, co-founder of The Joyful, a brand and marketing agency for purpose-driven businesses. In our first episode, I had the great pleasure of interviewing my co-host for this podcast, Annie Murray. We discussed the why behind creating Through the Lens of Recovery, the importance of sharing when it comes to substance misuse and addiction, and Annie's own story from street homeless alcoholic to businesswoman extraordinaire and founder of Horizon. While we do explore some topics listeners may find disturbing, such as addiction, abuse, homelessness and near-death experiences, this is such an important and uplifting conversation and we really hope you enjoy. So Annie, welcome. Welcome to your own podcast. (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you for being here. So today we're going to discuss why we're here, why this podcast exists, and importantly, the story that has created Horizon, which is the charity behind this really important podcast. Mm. So to kick us off, can you tell us a little bit about you, Annie Murray? (laughs) Certainly. Uh, Only purely because you called me Annie Murray. I respond well to that. (laughs) It (laughs) It just seems much more official, doesn't it? Very formal. <laughs> Annie Murray, tell us about you. Well, firstly, the podcast is, isn't about me. It's not my podcast. It's the community's podcast. But um, certainly it, it, the, the whole sense of Horizon comes from my experience and my story. And I still need to keep that very real and in check and very much at the forefront of what we do, because our experiences always lead us on to the right path. Well, not always, but it can lead us down the right path if we choose to listen to it and work towards it and make the world a better place in the process, really. Um, So my story with alcohol, which is my biggest downfall, my my nemesis, really. Um, Basically, I I had an alcoholic parent as a child, and I don't need to dwell on that too much, but what I was exposed to was very much how alcohol was treated. And I think for me, the key thing that I learned from this was that alcohol was a secret. Alcohol was something you did in private. Alcohol was something that was kept aside. It wasn't social. It wasn't advertised that way at all. (laughs) Um, So what I learned through my experience was that it caused turmoil, upset, illness. And I knew all of this for many, many years. And it really kind of tore the family um, apart in many ways. Uh, So I had a lot to learn in very early years. And I know many people have had experiences of an alcoholic childhood. Um, But when it came to my, (laughs) you know, growing up, and most people would like to experiment with alcohol at some stage, but because of everything that I'd learned about alcohol, I was terrified of it. I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want to know. I didn't know what it would give me, but I knew what it would do to me in that it could make me sick. It could make me sleep. It could make me smelly. It could make me all these angry things. That was my picture of alcohol. So actually going out at the age of 18 with my friends, I used to be given like a bottle of X or something and then uh, I'd pour it away in the bushes. I actively tried to pretend to drink it and pour it away whenever I could. So it was very much a, a thing that I was not interested in, full stop. <laughs> but um, I think as time went on, you do 
get a bit of a sense of an intrigue about alcohol. So when I started trying alcohol and noticing that first effect, I remember my very first drink and it had such a powerful effect. I was, I felt happy and complete and confident and I felt magical, really. I mean, <laughs> that's what it does to people. We, we can't deny that. That will always be the case. It's what happens after that is where it becomes messy. So um, I must say, and I've heard this before in early recovery, that when certain people start drinking, it becomes, well, you, you're immediately an alcoholic, an addictive kind of thought, brain process and pattern starts to happen. So I find it incredibly hard to stick to one. I'm forever, and I think most people are the same, will start chasing that initial feeling over and over and over again. So when I started drinking, I started drinking quite a lot. And it wasn't just a night out, it was a night out to blackout. Um, but more importantly, I drank secretively. I drank by myself from a very early age. So in my early 20s, I would drink myself silly in the evenings or daytimes, didn't matter when. I just, I knew that feeling would come if I had a drink. And I knew eventually that I would just probably pass out. And that's kind of became quite a comfortable place for me to be. Um, but where I found it really useful was um, I went into sort of the, the theatre profession and music profession. And that needed an awful lot of confidence. And it needed a lot of um, bolstering um, <laughs> internally. I needed to be somebody other than myself. Also, I thought I didn't believe in myself as a person enough to go out there and just be myself be and go and do my talents on stage, you know, and just live it and enjoy it. I felt like I had to act my way around the world. I had to pretend to be someone all the time. And whenever I was off stage, I struggled with that. So what I found was that on stage when I was performing, I was in a show or I was doing a gig, I could pretend to be someone and I was safe with that mask. I was safe with that armor of another character. So actually when it got to my own time, my home time. Drink was the thing that kind of consoled me and the thing that would get me to a party or to an interview or to an audition. I remember turning up quite blotto to auditions and job interviews, you know, because I thought that I needed this stuff in me to make me a better person. I truly believed I was more creative, more interesting, more intelligent, you know, all of these things that I really wanted to be and I didn't know I already was. So that's key later on in life. But um, at this point in my life, you know, my, my family left the country and we all kind of dissipated into different areas and different worlds in my early 20s. And I found that really hard. And I think when I lost my sort of sense of family unit um, in, my, in my early 20s, it's still a really young, impressionable age for me or for anyone. Young adults are still very vulnerable and moldable and... So alcohol became my daily thing. It became my family. It became my best friend. It became my confidant and my confidence. It became everything to me. And I look back on it as, as medicinal. I would always term alcohol as medicine for me to be who I wanted to be. Just before you go into to what happened next, I'd like to unpick this because yeah. I think this part of your story is very relatable mm -hmm. to a lot of people who maybe the next part seems to be the most extreme because I obviously I know what's coming mm. um but I I want I really want through the conversations we're having with this podcast to to resonate with people at any stage that they mm. might be along the journey because my own experience is 
similar in ways, using alcohol and drugs as a way to fit in and to belong, to to not feel like such a weirdo (laughs) and on the skirts. Um, And I think that, and I hear that a lot. I hear people say to me a lot, well, you know, what's life without alcohol? Or you're boring if you don't drink, or I will be boring if I don't drink. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's something more that we can unpick in that is like, what exactly do you think and and having done now the work you do through Horizon Mm. is that that belief where does that belief come from in terms of our cultural understanding Mm. specifically with alcohol because it's everywhere around us this idea that alcohol gives you something it's it's an interesting one I guess everyone's story will be different or thinking will be different behind this but personally speaking um it was my lack of confidence in myself it was my lack of self-esteem which I still struggle with and I think that's just a human trait we all suffer with anxieties and stress and vulnerabilities they are bubbling under the surface all the time and I think when you start to get overridden with anxiety I mean I had an anxiety as a kid I could barely get into school I could I could not speak to an adult I found adults terrifying that's the other thing fear I was fear driven fear led and fear based So everything I thought and felt and every train of thought, every pattern of thought was led by fear. So when you get this this sense of what alcohol can give you, that that false sense of security, a false sense of confidence, a chemically induced person arrives and you feel protected because you're still underneath that. But this, this persona that people get and they can become quite nasty and brash and bold and, and overly silly when you when you soberly look at drunken people. Uh, it's quite embarrassing in, in, in some cases, you know. Um, but I think when we, put, when we have that persona in front of us, we are still bubbling underneath with the anxiety and the fear, but it's down here. It's way down, pushed down low. And it's a safety net. It's um, if I am this persona for now, no one will actually see me. No one will know who I really am and what I'm thinking. No one will know I'm inadequate. No one will know I'm not good enough. So all of this is an internal monologue of me just not feeling comfortable in my own skin, which is something that's taken me nearly 40 years, nearly 40 years, <laughs> to feel a bit more comfortable in my skin. And if I could have gone back to my younger self and sort of said, you know, you are enough as you are. And it wasn't like my mum never told me, my mum smothered me with all of this, but I only got it from one perspective, my mum loved me to bits and told me every day how uniquely talented I was and how special I was. But I just thought, you know, well, that's my mum. What does everyone else think? And when I'm out there auditioning every day, getting rejected every day, the outside world was telling me I'm not good enough. But, you know, I was in a profession where that you need to perform and be somebody and be noticed. And I think there's some key moments that stuck in my head from um, a college principal that said, if you walked into a room full of people to audition, no one's going to notice you. And I think I left with flying colours, all the grades, all the top marks for what I was doing, you know, performance-wise and, and, and academically, but intrinsically told, you don't look right. You are not going to make it because you look a certain way. And it's like, flipping out. I can't change the way that I look. I'm ashamed of the way that I look. I look different. I Don't we all feel a bit different? But I truly believe that I was so different to everyone else. And I think when you feel different to everyone else, you are lost. And I think the key in that is connection and realizing through other people's stories that we are all feeling this. And it takes a long time for some people to get to the point of feeling comfortable in their own skin and confident in who they are. 
and strong enough to voice opinions and thoughts and feelings. A lot of feelings are withheld. And, you know, you have a drink or two, feelings come splurging out. Truth well out, as they say, you know, but. Well, yeah, I mean, they do, but also alcohol is a depressant. So they do, Mm. but they're not felt. It's like Mm. you can, all of the stuff under the surface, the inhibition goes, but actually the feeling is being numbed and numbed and numbed and numbed and numbed, Mm. which is really also what leads down the, 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 the path of addiction is that complete emptiness that then comes as a, as a result of the using of, of whatever drug yeah. it might be, which is your experience, isn't it? So tell us yeah. what, what happened after this. Well, I completely get, I'm glad you said that because numbness was how I lived for well over a decade. I, I would say for 15 years, I drank every day and I couldn't see a day without drink in it. So actually, by the time I got to 28, I mean, I'd, I'd explored coming out. I'd had, you know, a female partner that I was very proud of and I was not told otherwise, but I kept it quite secretive from family and things. You know, something else to be to carry with a little bit of shame, perhaps that I've, you know, overcome in later years. But at the time, that was big in my 20s, um, going from job to job to job, barely scraping by financially, physically, mentally. Uh, that emptiness was there all the time. And whenever the sober version of me started to creep in, God, the anxiety, the fear, the, the confusion, actually having thoughts and feelings, hangovers for me were impossible. So what this started to turn into for me was a drink in the morning. It, well, not just a drink. <laughs> yeah, that button never switched off. It was several. And before I knew it, I was into drugs. Um, and I do remember you know, taking a line of Coke on the M25 once because I because I was feeling a bit anxious in the queue, you know, (laughs) to take cocaine on top of that anxiousness. I mean, it's just crazy. Like you say, these these things are either a depressant or they they make your body feel more anxious. So I was combating my anxiety with all the wrong uh, things, really. So by the age of 28, I decided to do the classic and run away. (laughs) And I literally uh, quit my job, and I went to Australia. I'd met someone and I thought, I'll make a crack of it over there. I'll start a new life. It'll all be different on the other side of the world. And of course, you know, wherever you go, you take yourself with you. And what I found over there was I lasted a matter of weeks, not, not even a couple of months, I think, before I had to just, you know, come home. I had to wait 24 hours for each email back from my mum and my sister who are being incredibly supportive. But as soon as I got home, basically what happened was that I moved in with my parents who are now back in the country, which was great. But I think when I moved back in home, they saw the extent of my drinking and just how bad it had gotten. I used to smuggle drinks bottles, bottles of wine. I used to, I couldn't carry them through the house because they had an inkling, of course. So I'd stick them on my window ledge and I'd go in and kind of swish my arms around and be like, hi, everyone. Walk straight into my bedroom and grab them off the, off the windowsill. You know, the secretive drinking. It was, it's, it was with me all the way through. So by this point, I think my health had really deteriorated. I didn't have a job. Um, my music was struggling and my parents were starting to get annoyed, angry, upset, fearful. Um, my health started to show signs that my liver wasn't functioning properly. Um, and I started to have a few detoxes, um, home detoxes, which aren't necessarily the safest thing to do. But my mum, she, she really tried and she would be with me all night, hold me, try and feed me, try and get me well. I went through a period of about 18 months without being able to eat solids because my stomach was in such shreds. Um, I was incredibly ill. Um, 
<laughs> what happened after this just it gets ridiculous because I've jumped from first floor windows in order to escape the house I've been put into a rehab and left after 18 hours when I started to sober up um, and I left in the snow in my pajamas in these little flimsy slippers in the middle of Southampton and I walked through snow for four hours and I all to get a bottle of wine or two bottles of wine and a packet of cigarettes and I laid down under a bush I downed the wine and I smoked a cigarette or two until I passed out in the snow <laughs> and then you know waking up god knows how I woke up but I woke up with hypothermia and frostbite to my feet which took weeks to heal and I still can't feel my my big toes um you know but I, I the, the drive to get that drink was immense I would drive through the night if I had a car, I would drink drive, I would push limits that I didn't know I had. And even looking back, I'm not sure how my body did it. I was taken into a GP surgery one night. Um, some people were concerned about me. I was wandering about on the streets with my pajamas on in the middle of the snow. And, you know, they, they weighed me. I was something like six stone. And, you know, I've got 15 years of evidence of, of, of health records that suggest that these numbers all these, I don't know what they all mean, but they are sky high or super low. Like my, I don't know how my body survived all of this. Um, I've been in many hospitals. I've been in mental institutions. And again, where my, my, my parents would be a bit like, tell us what's wrong with her. And they'd send me home just saying, well, she's just an alcoholic. She's just an alcoholic. They wanted me to have some mental disorder so that we could fix it with some tablets, but that wasn't the case. Um, I think, cut a long story short, um, my parents left the country again to go and sell their French house and I was left to my own devices and I was set up um, I was set up in a flat and within two weeks I was evicted from that flat and for the first time in my life I was homeless street homeless I had everything stolen from me because uh, it was all parked outside the front of the, the flat and uh, it, I saw people drive off with my car uh, with everything in it and sleeping rough around my hometown where I was born was weird and hard but I knew it inside out and I was there for several months uh, and basically over the next few years was me going in and out of, of courtrooms being arrested for shoplifting I had no money I had no phone I had no means I had no people I had no direction or sense of what on earth was going on um, so the amount of times I've been arrested has been ridiculous and I think by the time uh, I, I, I got to, I don't know what age time it escapes me at this point the time frames mean nothing to me but I was on the streets around Reading, Newbury, Bristol and Brighton for the next uh, four, five, six years um, literally no home, no place to be, no place to go, no, no body around me apart from the odd sort of services or hospital or doctor that would kick in now and again whenever I was really in trouble um, obviously living street homeless is highly vulnerable for anyone but I was a young woman uh and I would be preyed upon um by the homeless community there was uh there's been some incidences where I have been raped on the street I've been taken into hospital beaten black and blue I was photographed in my underwear 168 times with all the different injuries on my body um I wasn't allowed to see myself in the mirror for six weeks when I was um taken off the streets and I think that final time when I was when I was raped and assaulted to that point and taken in and put into a little place in the middle of, of, of Brighton, right on the Grand Parade, like a really beautiful spot. But my carpet was bloodstained, you know, it was not glamorous. <laughs> um, but I think it was those those moments when you realize, you know, looking back, I, I don't know how I made it again through that episode.
and on came many, many, many different um, experiences of trying to tell people what it is that I'd been through, but without any really hard, solid evidence of, of what actually went wrong. Um, there was even one point I was taken off the streets and my conviction list was so long. And because I had no fixed abode, they put me into a prison for, I think, about two months as well. Um, and that was really hard. You know, I'd write to my mum. I was sober there. I didn't belong there. I hadn't really done anything that wrong. But I was mixing with all sorts of criminals and I was led to believe that that's where I belonged. And uh, at the time, it was the safest place for me, you know. So my experiences have been extreme, but I find myself in Brighton and this is where I, I find my recovery, basically. <laughs> and before we go into, into that next stage, um, mm. what your story is, as you say, it is extreme. And at the same time, it's kind of an interesting dichotomy between being extremely relatable to most, if not every person in the sense of we will have all experienced homelessness by proxy. Mm. And something that really struck me having lived in Brighton for, for almost a decade was the level of homelessness. Mm. And the and, I, and it always, always panged me because mm. I'm so aware with my own behaviour that I was only ever just a little step away from that that there was it was only ever circumstantial not moral not any of the things that I think a lot of people bring into the conversation and so before we move on I'd really like to talk about that because Mm. I'm guessing most of the the listeners haven't had the experience of being on the streets and probably have had the experience of at least some form of judgment or against people who are on the streets yeah yeah so I'd like to talk to that um one of the things that you you've spoken about before is is actually that that the experience isn't what people think it would be. I mean, obviously there's the extreme side, but there's another side to it that you've explained before. Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, alcoholism and homelessness doesn't prey upon those who are uneducated, unloved, unwanted people. That, that you know, it can happen to to lords and ladies as well as you know cleaners and and and, and mechanics. I mean, <laughs> everyone in between. We all have the possibility of going down this path, and my path led me here and I wouldn't have believed it as a kid no one goes oh when I grow up I want to be an alcoholic homeless person and you don't ever picture it until literally your head is going on that pavement at night and I can't describe it any other way than than feeling like this is it this this is my life this is it now and it's very much like just deal with it very matter of fact the brain goes into survival mode and it's very much like right I'll go to sleep here then I'll wake up and you know, you, you learn things like you've got to keep your boots on. You've got to keep your 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 sleeping bag zip, unzipped because you need to be able to run away at any point. There's all these tricks that you learn, how to eat cheaply if you need to eat or if you're inclined to eat, you know, how to steal wine, how to steal. A lot of homeless people used to steal meat and sell them to restaurants at the back door and earn a bit of cash that they could score drugs. You know, I, I never got to that point, but I would hang around in a community of people and these men would prey upon me and, and kind of claim me as theirs. So I would be hanging around with them. So you sort of feel safe because you're with someone, you know? And, but the thing is the guy that one of the guys that I started hanging around with, he was the one that beat me black and blue. So you, you're never that safe. You can't trust people when they are on these drinks and drugs that cause their brain to malfunction, you know? So yeah, I never expected it. Yes. It happened to me. Yes. I'm well-educated. It means nothing. I'm well-educated and loved and all of these things, uh, but it doesn't 
stop that possibility from happening. You're absolutely right. Um, but going back to that street homelessness where you do need to be savvy, you do need to be switched on, you do need to be aware of what's going on around you. And actually, like you said, interestingly, and what people don't picture is that during those times, in order to keep myself safe, I was actually just about surviving on alcohol. I was on the brink of withdrawal all, all the time. So I wasn't actually ever feeling drunk. I wasn't ever blotto. I wasn't ever just passing out here. I'd love to have been. That was my ideal place. And whilst I had a bed and a roof and a hostel and all these things, that's where I could do that safely. But I couldn't do that safely on the street. So whenever you do walk past homeless people, you know, they might have a hostel to go back to or they might not, you know, but but, but I think judging people, and I, I probably still do it a bit, when I, when I see people, I still have this kind of thing, well, you know, you haven't tried hard enough. You haven't really sort of considered this. You haven't, um, and I hate my brain for doing it. And I'm, I've been there and I've been there myself, but I will still look at someone homeless and kind of go, well, you know, you asked for it <laughs> in the back of my mind a little bit. I think it's a societal thing because, um, and this is the wider picture of, of, the, the capitalist system is that we are conditioned to believe that human beings are only as wor- only worth as much as what they can earn for the system. Mm. And people who are actively on the streets begging, you know, all of these things, plus the, the kind of fear element, I think, yeah. of, of seeing somebody who is doing, taking a substance that everybody has got in their cupboards mm. <laughs> to such a degree... Mm. It, it, it's uh, it's this kind of them and us thing. And it, it's something that really bothers me because you can be in a pub, you can drink 15 pints and go to the toilet half every half an hour and do a line of cocaine. Mm-hmm. And that's societally acceptable. But you can be on the streets, literally just a few meters away on a park bench doing crack cocaine, the same chemical compound, mm-hmm. and drinking white lightning or whatever the, the stereotype is. And that's completely unacceptable. And I think that's a real thing of what we've been talking about in this podcast about the the hypocrisy, actually, of of specifically the British public, because we've got an expectation of, you know, if people go, why, why don't you drink? That's so boring. Why don't you drink? (laughs) But then the expectation is that you should be able to take this addictive substance and manage it in a way that's acceptable if you don't take it at all, that's unacceptable. And if you go too far, that's also unacceptable. So you've got to, as a society, we're constantly trying to stay in this weird grey zone of acceptable consumption of a poisonous, addictive yeah. substance. And we never do. And this is where the secretive part comes in. And that's what I learned is that if you can secretively get blotto and pass out, you'll be all right. If you can secretively go out and not drink, and this is the glory of picking up a, a, an alcohol-free drink now, is that you can kind of blend in because people don't notice they're having a few drinks. You can have an alcohol-free beer in your hand uh, or something that looks a bit alcoholic and you feel like you're fitting in a bit more because people are fooled into believing you're drinking and you're not. And, you know, we can all get a bit silly in conversation that Actually, some of the silliest conversations, some of the best conversations I've had are sober, have been sober. And, you know, some of the most wisest, interesting and most memorable things. And actually, hey, I remember conversations. I remember people and these connections with people that I have, you know, conversations on a night out. They stay with me and they educate me and they fulfill me. They give me a cup full of joy. 
and yeah. you know a glass versus a glass full of alcohol I know what I'd rather <laughs> have now you know I used to yearn for the day when I could stand at a party with an orange juice in my hand and feel completely content and I never believed for a second that I could be that person but now it's you know I don't like orange juice so much but hey <laughs> any other kind <laughs> of annoying that we get fucked yeah. off with orange juice well exactly okay. <laughs> I mean I had someone once offer me a, a glass of milk and I was like <laughs> you're trying to zhuzh up the fact that I don't drink but you know water's fine if that's all you've got but please don't offer me milk you know <laughs> no, I'm not a five-year-old but you know I am an adult now and it's actually accepting it as an adult I can do what I like so if I turn up somewhere and there's a pressure on me to drink, I don't need to be there. Do you know what? These are the people I don't need to be around. And it's learning my limits and who I want to spend my time with. And I look around me now and all the people I'm with choose, not because they're addicts and have had a story like mine or near to mine or close to mine, but because they just don't like feeling unwell. They don't like the depression afterwards. They don't like the silliness that gets carried away. They've got, come to a point in their sort of 40s or so and they've gone, do you know what? I'm tired of this. And it's that phrase in, in recovery that you get sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. And if at any point you reach that point, that alcohol is making you feel sick and tired rather than giving you the joy, then look at it in black and white and go, hey, maybe I've just outgrown this thing. Maybe my youth is over. Let's face it. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe it's just not needed. Maybe, just maybe I'm enough on my own. I love that. I'm enough on my own. And mm -hmm. if you would like, and you're listening to this and you would like some scientific understanding of what alcohol actually does to you, we have an episode with William Porter who wrote Alcohol Explained and he will explain <laughs> all of alcohol in that well, episode. I, yeah, I learned a huge amount from William like, and, and I'm six years into recovery and I, he gave me such insight into why and how and yeah, it was mind-blowing. Really good stuff. Yeah, it was. So, Annie. Mm-hmm. How did you, how are you, how are you here now? <laughs> I don't know. It's a miracle. <laughs> I think it's a every, damn miracle. Every, it is a damn miracle. And I, I think everyone's life is a miracle. We, we sometimes forget to look at it as plain and simple as that. We are really fortunate to be here. We are not gifted with life, you know, just, just ah, and take it for granted. And, you know, we, we, we become quite kind of, you know, expectant of the fact that we've got this life you know we can do what we want with it we can spend it depressed we can drink through it we can you know it's so sort of dismissive of the fact we've been given it a gift we all have this miracle and and I think when I eventually I was living in a hostel for about two years and they tried to to sober me up uh, but there was one point I became really unwell and I, I'd taken something on top of having a drink and I didn't know what the substance was, but basically it sent my heart and my breathing into disarray and I was rushed into hospital, put into intensive care. And I do remember grabbing doctor's coats and clinging onto them and just wishing and praying. I didn't want to die. I think for the first time in my life, I didn't want to die. And I realized this and it was such an overpowering moment of clarity um, I wanted to see my family. I have nieces and nephews and a, and a sister who I adore. And I just, I wanted to see them again. Um, I grabbed onto a tattoo that I ha had made that has all their initials on. And I, I grabbed onto it in the hopes the doctors would tell them that I was thinking of them when I died. Because I felt like I was dying. I, I felt my body going. It's a unique experience. I'll never forget it. It's not like falling asleep. It is so much deeper than that. My body was giving way and it was terrifying. And I think I shut my eyes with this kind of blind faith that I would wake up again, a complete blind faith. So I had to give in to this feeling. Um, and when I woke up, I finally realized that I needed me. 
you know no one else is going to do this for me no key worker no street team no doctor or, or court judge no one can fix this but me and I needed Annie and from that point onwards my mindset was quite changed and I remember the, the, the next few days in hospital I would read to an older lady across the way from me who was really poorly and I used to go and pick up her old romantic um, novel and, and read to her every day it gave me a purpose it distracted me from feeling so ill and it got me through my days as well so I think that sense of sort of giving to someone in order to kind of help me uh which you know is it selfish no it's not it's, it's that whole thing if I was giving to someone that fulfilled me and I think that's something that I live by today and that's why I run this 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 community course is that I want to give to people the gift that I've been given and in early recovery I did get mixed in with some amazing recovery groups and people that just they kind of grab onto you and they look after you and they point you in the right direction. You hear their stories and you connect for the first time. I heard people speaking my language and and telling me things that I was thinking to myself and thinking, I can't share this with anyone. No one's going to understand me. No one's going to know how this feels. And when you walk into a whole room full of people and they're all saying the same things, the stories sound familiar. That's my story, just with different circumstances. And you start connecting and joining the dots and you start seeing that these people are like 18 months, 10 years, 18 years into recovery and they haven't touched a drink or a drug. And to me, that was like, you are God. You have done something I don't think I can do, um, but I wanted to. I really wanted to. And I think joining recovery groups, I did join the AA fellowship and I did my service. I got sponsors. And, you know, after about a year and a half, I did get a little bit sticky in those rooms. I got a little bit bored. I had heard the stories a million times and I moved on to a different kind of recovery, which was to include recovery in my day to day, which is in my work and my purpose and my, my the people around me. So I'm always in touch with recovery. I'm just not having to go to a room to specifically talk about it. But it's in my day to day. And I think someone once said to me that, you know, recovery is a bridge to normal living. And normal living to me isn't going seven days a week to a meeting or even once a week to a meeting. That's just not my not my thing. I want to live freely. And so that's what I do now. Yeah, I heard I heard something similar, which is um, recovery is recovering oneself mm. and one's relationship with self, because certainly a, a united experience within the, the experience of addiction mm. is the, the lack of, of like loss of self, loss of connection. Um, and I, I really like that because I think there's a there's you know, there's a whole there's a whole subjective way of looking at language when it comes to addiction when it comes to recovery mm. and uh, there's there's people on lots of different sort of sides of that um so how tell us about horizon and mm. how horizon came to be through this journey yeah well I mean there can always be more community projects um always there can never be too many um but what I found in my early recovery is that I was desperately going from thing to thing to thing and find trying to find something that I fitted into that I enjoyed that I loved and I tried every group going, I tried every, every, everything, things I didn't even think would appeal to me. And over time, I just pieced together all the bits that I loved. And when film was put to me and I was actually given a laptop to edit on one afternoon and a, a camcorder in the other hand, you know, I started to get into film editing and filming, which I mean, I've always loved photography, but I was terrified of cameras, you know all the buttons what do you do with those buttons and uh you know slowly over, over time I, I started getting work people started seeing what I was doing 
uh, and people started to pay me little bits of money. And I think one of my first big jobs was with a CBBS presenter, and there I was, you know, running around Brighton filming for for this this kind of well known guy. And my my nephew thought I was amazing because I was working with this guy that he watches on TV every day. So I was getting a sense of real pride in what I was doing and everything that I created. It was like I love performing. I love putting things out there that are creative and thought-provoking and visual and musical. And film gave me all of that. I, 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 get, I get a different kind of joy in, in because I guess a film is a performance, but it's an edited performance, you know? So I, I get the same fulfillment that I've had throughout my life, my passion for music, my passion for acting and, and dancing. That's all now in a, being put out in a different format. And I've fallen in love with film and it's practically saved my life. So yeah, piecing together all these bits that I love, putting it together. And then eventually I got my first pot of um, national lottery funding. Um, and I ran my first course in 2019. And from that course, I think we had like an 80% course completion from the students. We had 75% of those students went on to further education in film or photography, or they went into employment. Uh, one of those students uh, came to us and she was on a sort of a suicide watch. We had to cope with that while she was with us. But, you know, all these years later, uh, three years later now, she is running a homeless charity in Brighton. She's still sober. She's out there in the world living just the best version of herself that she can possibly live. And, you know, people like that that have come onto the course and seeing them progress through the years and looking back and going, hey, well, because of my experience and what I've learned and what I've pieced together for other people is now giving other people the opportunities that I had. But, hey, they're getting a course that, that, that they can really get their teeth stuck into. If they're anything like me, they'll enjoy this course. And, and, you know, course after course, we're getting more and more people kind of, you know, dipping in and going, hey, this is possible. Um, and also, you know, film equipment is not cheap. It's daunting. It's scary. But it's also really exciting. So I think people come along a little bit nervous for the stuff. But then learning, actually, it's a creative process and there's no right or wrong to it. You know, there really is no, it, art is art and film is art. So we welcome people who are into audio and makeup and set design, anything to do with film. There's so many different areas of creativity within this profession. Uh, there's something for everyone, you know, and that's what Horizon is. That's what it does. That's what it caters for. But also it's my, it's my passion to keep that full 12 step circle going where I get to give back to the people in the community that freely gave me a life worth living. I love that. I love that. And in that process, you're giving people confidence and um, and and connection and community and purpose and all of these really important mm. human emotions. And and the way that I see it, in when I think about the the journey of addiction or the experience of addiction, is kind of like closes the circle, bringing it back to the point of when we reach for whatever our substance or whatever our, our thing it's not always a substance um is to feel like we belong to numb out these uncomfortable emotions mm. to find a sense of connection however sort of fake or intangible that might be what you're doing through horizon and your whole story brings back to an authentic sense of this thing that that many people feel is missing mm. so I think it's it's such a beautiful story for everyone even people who aren't you know as far along their journey as you have been as as I know quite a few of the people who've come to Horizon have been there's something in there for for everyone really even if all they mm. do is just drink too much on a weekend <laughs> 
<laughs> well, yeah, exactly. There's, there's no definitive answer as to who's really got a problem and who's not. You don't have to be on the streets to, to realise you've got a problem. It could be that you, you know, someone once said to me that if you are finding your day-to-day hard to manage because of drink or drugs, then you, you, you've probably got a problem. <laughs> if you cannot get through a day without a drink or the fact that your weekend focuses on it or your social life really doesn't exist without a drink, then maybe there's a problem. Um, but we're not here to point fingers and say, hey, you, you, you have a problem, but you guys don't. You're fine. We don't judge. You know, if people wanted to come to us and sort of say, look, I'm on the brink. I don't really know what this is about. I'd like to find out more from you. We are open. We hold our arms open wide. You know, we're not some closed cult that, that opens the doors only to those who are at their very, very lowest. But that's often when people do join. And that's OK. If you reach your rock bottom, there's always, always people out there that are going to listen and support that have been there, too. And these are the best people to listen to you know my family didn't weren't quite catered they didn't they didn't know they weren't educated enough to give me what I needed so I needed to find my people and you know giving people a sense of purpose and structure and routine and also when people come to you and they share with you what their problems are they need to feel validated and listened to I think there's nothing more important in this world than being listened to and as soon as you start getting listened to you start feeling like a person and then when you start feeling like a person you don't need that drink to, to, to therefore be your mask. You can be a person and be accepted and welcomed and encouraged. I remember someone bought me a, a coffee one day and I was blown away that this woman had spent £2.50 on, a, on a, a flat white for me, for me, you know. And I've, I've come a long way in my it'll be six years in July. And what I've learned is that people are my tonic people. When I get with people, I get my fill of happiness and joy, knowledge, experience, I get to share belly laughs and all those things are just amazing and they're not induced, they're not fake, they're not masked, they're not numbed. I can go to bed at night and sleep well because I am me. And you know what, after all these years and probably because of what I went through, I quite like me. In fact, I'm more comfortable with me now than ever and I know I've still got a lot to learn. I know that I've still got a journey ahead of me and I'm thankful to have that journey ahead of me and you know, to have had that rock bottom and that near-death experience or experiences. I've got a few more under my belt, but we're, we're not going there now. Um, but, you know, I've had those experiences that, that have enlightened me to the point where I just know one thing, and that's that I want to live, and I want to live the best life that I can. And I, that means that I do give to other people, and I will always have the horizon doors open as, 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 long, as, I, as long as I live and make it bigger and better and more accessible for more people and to welcome those people at any stage of their recovery. Because, you know, anyone who shows signs of struggling and just wants to ask the question you are more than welcome. Absolutely, absolutely fantastic and so inspirational. Um, And so in all of our episodes, we are finishing up the interview with a rapid fire question round. Oh, yeah. And you thought you were safe. I did. (laughs) I forgot this bit. (laughs) I hadn't prepared. (laughs) Um, Which is good because the the idea is to just... Quick fire. Say what comes up. So... Annie Murray, yeah, are you ready? I am ready. What do you enjoy doing in your free time? <sighs> Music, running, and being with friends. What's one piece of advice you would give someone who's super curious or at the early stages of their journey? Ask questions from people with experience. Oh, I like it. Finish this sentence. Addiction is? Possible. No, that's recovery. I was answering a, a question ahead. <laughs> addiction is not possible. It, addiction is prison. And recovery is? 
possible. What more can be done to raise awareness um, and support for people who are going through addiction? Um, to raise awareness, I, th I think, you know, um, shouting from the rooftops and using the right kind of um, voices to to raise that roof. And, you know, like for me, working with you guys, the, the marketing behind this is hugely important. We need to reach more people. And we know that the ways of doing that is, is, is beyond our capabilities sometimes. We just want to be seen and heard. Um, we know we're doing the right things. Um, so it's, it's a difficult one because I think people are doing the best that they can, but there can always be more of it. Definitely. Never enough. Great. Great. And finally, what do you wish you'd known at the beginning of your journey that you know now? That there's two things. Um, that you are enough as you are and that everything's going to be okay. I love it. You, you are, are enough. enough. I think, and even, even some days now I'm like, uh, yeah I've, I had a little bout of depression not long ago and, and for the first time in recovery and I, I've realized that actually sometimes you do need to step back even when you're well and you're doing all right life will hit you again and life does get tough you know it's not, being in recovery doesn't mean that life's going to be plain sailing free and easy it means that you're just better equipped to deal with the tougher times and sometimes it's going to knock the wind out your sails but that's okay because through all the things I've been through in my recovery tough things um I've managed to do it without drink and in fact the thought of a drink on top of all those awful things just doesn't compute for me. I would not survive that. So yeah, yeah, recovery is a joy and it's freedom as well. That's the other one thing I wanted to say, it's pure freedom. I think that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so, so much for sharing your story with us, Annie. Um, and I'll, I'll see you in the studio for the next recording. Thank you for having me on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a pleasure having me. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. This podcast has been brought to you by Horizon, a not-for-profit that provides film and media training to people in recovery from addiction. To find out more about Horizon, you can visit the Horizon website at www.myhorizon.rocks or follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Horizon Brighton. Or if you have any suggestions or ideas for future episodes, you can always let us know. Thanks for listening.